It's the second Sunday of Advent, and we're glad to be worshiping together. It, uh, Advent is this time that we set aside as a church, especially to prepare for Christmas. It's a time of trying to prepare ourselves spiritually. Uh, Christmas gets to be such a busy season with everything else, and sometimes the spiritual gets kind of put away a little bit. And so on these Sundays, we try to think about what it means to prepare ourselves for Christmas. And in fact, that's the title of our series of sermons for this year, Preparing for Christmas. Uh, it's not a how-to, actually, on our part, how to prepare. It's more, how did God prepare? And we're looking at that this morning. In fact, in some ways, the entire Old Testament is God's preparations for Christmas. The Bible is just eager to show that Christmas did not come about as a surprise twist that even God didn't think about till, man, that would be a good idea. Maybe this is the time to do that. But from the very beginning, God had a plan and God was preparing for Christmas. And in Matthew's gospel, Matthew is the one that really brings this out. There's six different ways in those first stories leading up to Jesus' public ministry where it says this came about as prophesied in the Old Testament. So let's just look at a couple of those. All this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet, the virgin will conceive a child. And when the wise men came to Herod, Herod said, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? And the priest replied, in Bethlehem in Judea, for this is what the prophet wrote. And then they run away to Egypt because Herod is killing the children in Bethlehem. And it says, Herod's brutal action fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. And then when they come back, they live in this little town called Nazareth. And the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth, which fulfilled what the prophet said he will be called a Nazarene. And then finally, even just talking about John the Baptist. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. And this morning, as we think through this, we're thinking about how we can trace Jesus back through the Old Testament. In fact, the end of his life, this is what Jesus does. You remember on that Easter Sunday morning after he appeared to Mary in the garden and to some of the disciples, he shows up on a road to Emmaus. Emmaus was a little town a couple of miles out of uh, Jerusalem, and he's walking with these two guys, and they're questioning what happened, and Jesus is explaining it to them, though they don't realize that yet. And Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then a little bit later it says, Then he said, When I was with you before, I told you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus' birth is the high point in the story of God's relationship, but it's not the starting point. And you can think of the Bible in kind of four chapters. So that maybe gives you a hint. We've got four points this morning. But kind of four chapters that each answer a question that we ask. And the first question that we ask is simply this question, where did we come from? Huge debate, right? About evolution and creation and huge interest in even just our own. Um, Ancestry.com, get your DNA, figure out where your family tree is. 
Where did we come from? Well, the Bible's answer is simply God. Goes back behind the question of evolution and creation. It goes back to the question of who. Science is so busy trying to answer the question of how, and sometimes we get distracted by that. But the more important question, the Bible says, is the who. And the Bible is very clear that God made us to be in relationship with him. That in Genesis, Adam and Eve walk in the garden in the cool of the evening. They're talking with God. In Luke, Jesus comes for supper and, and Mary sits at his feet enthralled. And even in Revelation, there's this promise of being at a wedding feast, which is just sitting around the table, enjoying the presence of God. In other words, God made us to have this relationship with him. The challenge is, that's not how we experience life today. It's no Garden of Eden for most of us. And it's not how we experience God. It's not this closeness and this friendship. It, it, there's been a something that's happened. We don't have the sense that life is a banquet that we're sitting around or that we're sitting at the feet of Jesus. It sure isn't a wedding feast with dancing and free drinks. I mean, it's not even a Baptist reception. And the question comes, chapter 2, what went wrong? And the first chapter of this story is very short. It covered all of two chapters of the book of Genesis. What went wrong? Well, that covers one chapter of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. Everything is wonderful in this Garden of Eden. Everything is wonderful. Adam and Eve have this deep relationship with God. They're close. They, they get to talk to him and listen to him. And then, I don't know, something happens. They just get bored being nudists in paradise. And so they, they decide to disobey God. And this whole second chapter starts with Adam and Eve who are created to serve God and enjoy him forever. But they turn away from him and they decide to serve themselves. And they're tempted by what they want. And they touch and they eat and they disobey God. And that disobedience breaks the relationship. They lose their sense of community, their sense of wholeness that was there. They're alienated from God and they go high. They're alienated from themselves. They feel shame and nakedness. And they're alienated from each other and they immediately start to blame each other as to who's at fault. And they're alienated from nature and childbirth and work becomes a burden and a pain. So two chapters of this is what it was supposed to be. One chapter of this is what happened. And then 1187 chapters of just working that out. What sin looks like in people. In Matthew's gospel, he puts in a genealogy. He puts in the story of the various people who people these chapters throughout the Old Testament. And we read about Abraham who lies about his wife and sleeps with the maid. And Jacob who's forced to leave home before his brother kills him. Uh, we've got his son Joseph who's sold into slavery by his brothers. We've got David who kills a man to cover up his adultery with his wife. And Solomon, his son, who's got so many wives and mistresses, he could have played in the NBA. I mean, in all these innumerable people of the Old Testament, alienation is the result of that guilt of disobeying God. 
And what went wrong? Well, the Bible just calls it sin. And as you read through the Old Testament, you just get this sinking feeling. How can this change? I mean, even the brightest points, the, the Davids, the Solomons, they have feet of clay. They got families of dysfunction. They got sexual issues. And man, in books like the Book of Judges, you just wonder if there's any hope at all. And that becomes the third chapter. That becomes the third question. What will put things right? And that starts with Matthew and the other Gospels. And it's the story of the solution to the problem that God came up with. And as Matthew reminds us, it's been there foreshadowing and kind of little peeks into the future. I mean, even as far back as we saw last week, even as far back as that Genesis story, even as far back as Genesis chapter 3, there's this cryptic promise of the birth of Jesus. The Lord said to the serpent, because you've done this, you are cursed more than all the animals, domestic and wild. You'll crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between her offspring and hers. And he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And these promises kept slipping into the text unexpectedly. Uh, in Jeremiah, for the time is coming, said the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line, and he will be a king who rules with wisdom, and he will do what is just and right throughout the land. And this will be his name. The Lord is our righteousness. And in that day, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. And as Matthew is at pains to point out, the, the solution, the answer to what will put things right isn't a what. It's a who. And that answer is Jesus. The book of Exodus starts with God seeing the Israelites in slavery. And he raises up a deliverer named Moses. And Moses will lead God's people out of slavery. And he will lead God's people into the promised land of this restored relationship with him. And Matthew paints Jesus as the second Moses, the Moses who leads us out of slavery to sin, who leads us into the promised land of a restored relationship with God. And it's through sacrifice that God can overcome sin. The result of sin is death, our death. But God doesn't want death to be the final answer, so he gives a substitute to pay the penalty for us. That person is Jesus. And in Jesus' death as a righteous person, God and man, the price is paid. We can have a fresh start and a new life. And that substitution is God and man, what theologians call the incarnation, what we call the birth of Jesus. And Jesus writes himself into the story in order to do the impossible to save us from the results of our sins. And the result of that restoration is everything. The alienation that happened in Eden is reversed. We're put back into relationship with God. We become at peace with ourselves. We enter back into community with others. And at the end of time, all the world will be brought into a new harmony that Revelation describes as a new heaven and a new earth. But it raises the one last question. Question four, how can I be put right with God? 
And the final chapter of the story is, how can that be true for me? And rather than try to explain it theologically, let me just illustrate it with a story. When we sinned, it's as though we ran away from God. Remember the story of Jonah? Jonah was called by God. He said, go to Nineveh, which is that way, and Moses uh, and Jonah goes that way. So instead of going east, he goes west. And uh, he takes the ship and he gets shipwrecked, and you probably know some of that story. But it's like that with God. God wanted us to be in relationship with him, and we've run away from him in our sin. Whether we wanted to or not, what we've done is we've sort of run away as far as we can from him. And at some point, we wake up and we're on the other shore. And we see God on the other side of all that water and all his promises are there. And one day, sort of maybe like that prodigal son, we say, you know what? I need to go home. I sense that things would be a lot better if I had this relationship with God. And so being on the other shore from where God is, we get into the water and we start to swim towards him. And we're not alone. There's a whole bunch of people that are doing the same kind of thing. There's people all looking for God. And they use different strokes as they swim, and they are making more or less progress. And the strokes are, you know, somewhat similar, but somewhat different. You know, we do good things. We go to church. We pray. We serve others. We start across the sea. But as we've been swimming for a while, the perceptive of us discover something. The tide and the current are against us. We're just not making any progress. We're swimming as hard as we can towards God. But we're not getting to the other side. And we discover that religion is hard work. And for some of us, we just quit. We resign ourselves to the forlorn thought that we're not going to actually make it. Or some of us just sort of keep going with the forlorn hope that the tide will turn and the current will reverse and somehow we'll get there. But the reality is none of us are making much progress. And just then a boat pulls up beside us. And it's Jesus at the oars. And he offers to take us across. Why don't you get in, he says. Transfer your trust and rest with me. And you sort of look at the boat, and it's this old clinker-built rowboat that's seen much better days. It's not very impressive, and it's not very large. And you sort of wonder, why not a cruise ship? Why not at least a solid tank or a freighter? But the rowboat doesn't look a lot safer than the sea. And many who are making the trip just shake their head and keep swimming. They'll do it by themselves. Thank you very much. But two of us climb into the boat. And the two of you sit at the back, and Jesus picks up the oars, and soon the other shore starts to get close. But it's windy out there, and it's wavy, and the waves are coming over the sides, and you worry about whether this was the right way, and can you trust the little rowboats, and can you trust the man at the oars? And the other guy in the boat with you, well, they don't seem to have any doubts. They just fall asleep, and you watch every wave, and you watch every stroke of the oars. But eventually you arrive safe on that other shore. And you realize that in that entire journey, you were safe. 
as, of course, was your companion. And he may have had a lot of faith and you didn't have much faith. He may have been able to sleep while you worried the whole way whether or not this was the right thing. But you realize something profound. You realize that what saved you wasn't the amount of your faith. What mattered was the object of your faith. You'd had enough faith to climb into that boat, and that was all that mattered. And I think what that story is just trying to illustrate is that how do we get put right with God? We've got to transfer our trust from ourselves and what we do to God and what he's done. That's what Christmas is all about. It's all about the birth of this baby who will grow up to be a man, who will live the perfect life, will die on the cross, and will rise again from the dead. And he's going to come to us and say, because of sin, you deserve to die. But I have died in your place. And if you put your trust in me, if you put your faith in me, then I will pay the penalty for your sin. And my death will apply to you. He's really saying, you can try to swim your way to God and be good and do all this stuff, but the tides and the currents will always be against you. You will never make it on your own, but if you trust in me enough to climb into the boat, even if you're not convinced that that is enough, it will be enough. I think for many of us, the challenge of, of the Christian life is that we're conditioned to think we need to do it on our own, that we need to swim the entire way. And when this idea comes that Jesus Christ died on the cross, it seems flimsy. It doesn't seem like that should be enough. And yet God has spent the entire Old Testament, all those 1,190-some chapters, explaining how Jesus has been the answer from the beginning. What is Christmas all about? It's just that good news that God loved the world so much that he sent his only son into the world. He sent that baby on Christmas to grow up, to be a man, to live, to die, to rise again. That whoever believes in him Whoever stops trying to earn his forgiveness but simply accepts this offer of forgiveness will not die but have everlasting life. And that's what Christmas is all about. And that's what we remind ourselves of each Advent. We remind ourselves that Christmas is not the end of the story. It's not just the story of this baby that was born and isn't that wonderful. It's not just the story of all the things that happened in that little Bethlehem village on that night. That was just the start of the story. Well, in some ways, it was just the next step in the story because that story had started back in creation where God made us to be in relationship with him. And when we got out of relationship with him, God spent all this time preparing for Christmas, preparing to send his son into the world. That we can learn that it's not about what we do. 
but about what Jesus Christ has done for us. In other words, the gospel, the story of Christmas is good news. It's not just how to swim longer and faster. It's not about joining a religion. It's about how to receive forgiveness. It's about how to have a relationship with God that's deep and rich. It's about this free gift this Christmas, a gift for each one of us, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of a fresh start, and the gift of a relationship with God where we can go into this world and make a difference. And so this morning, perhaps just a reminder for many of us, a reminder that our relationship with God isn't a doing kind of thing. As I say, it's not just better and stronger swimming lessons. It's about the fact that we've climbed into this boat with Jesus. We're trusting on him, on his death on the cross for us. And sometimes in that boat, it gets stormy. And sometimes our doubts come up. Sometimes, maybe in the midst of this COVID, it just feels like we're in a storm. And yet, we know we're safe within this boat with Jesus. And though sometimes it feels like the waves of everything are coming over the sides of our lives, we are safe because we're with God. And so this Christmas, I just encourage us to remind ourselves of what Christmas is all about, but also to remind ourselves that sometimes it feels like the storms of life are pretty severe. And sometimes it feels like maybe this rowboat that we're in, this relationship with God isn't very strong. But things can be deceiving. And the promise of Christmas is we have that safety with God. We have that assurance that he will get us safely to the other side. And we have this assurance with God that he loves us he cares for us. He protects us. And he's bringing us to be with him that we can celebrate. Now, this Christmas is going to be different, isn't it? We're not going to be together as big families, probably. and We're not going to be able to have that celebration that we often have at Christmas. But the promise is one day we'll get to do that celebration. One day we'll all get to be together too. Celebrate together what God has done for us. How he's brought us safely to the other side. How he's brought us into eternity with him. Where we can live that life. Where we can be celebrating together. Living in God's presence. So this Christmas, I just invite us to reflect. To prepare ourselves for Christmas. To remind ourselves of the story we're in to remind ourselves that sometimes, though it doesn't feel like everything is the way it should be, God is still present, and he will get us safely to the other side. Father God, this morning we thank you for your promise. We thank you for your promises that started back in Genesis and continued throughout the Old Testament. The way you promised that you would send Jesus, who would rescue us from our sin, who would... Walk with us safely through life and who would bring us safely to spend eternity with you. 
Father, in the midst of the storms, we pray just for a fresh assurance that we are safe with you. In the midst of what's going on around us, Father, we pray that you would help us to just be able to lean back and rest on you. And Father, to know that you have come, that we might have life and have it to the full. And we thank you for this promise of Christmas this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.